Welcome to Career Chinwags for the 21st Century. My name is Catherine Cunningham and I'm a career specialist who's worked with thousands of people by now. And so what I'm trying to do in this podcast series is tap into things that I've learned, things that I've come to understand over the years to help people better manage their careers and be happier at work. So I want to talk first about MBTI. I love it. It's my favorite work. And if I'm, if I'm working with somebody who's not happy at work and they only have one hour to work with me, I always recommend MBTI because if you can uncover your hardwired preferences rather than learned behavior or learned skills, you can use that information to decide what sort of work to do. So, for example, when I was at the bank, my spreadsheets were basically full of errors because I don't have natural attention to detail. Now, since then, I've learned attention to detail. Anybody who works with me on resumes gets pretty amazed at everything I spot. So, yes, I can have attention to detail, but do I want to be in a job all day where I have to absolutely focus on the task at hand and notice every slight little issue? I can tell you no. So where does it come from? I want to give you a little bit of theory before we start. I'm going to look at the four separate letters, M-B-T-I, one at a time, and that will help you understand it. And I'm going to start at the back. So the I stands for indicator. MBTI is not a test. So if you go online and do one of those free versions, it's pretty well a waste of time. It is only an indicator. As an accredited practitioner, I'm bound by the ethics to only ever deliver the assessment with the debrief. Many times people think when they do the assessment that they're, for example, an ENTP, and it's only when you properly explore hardwired preferences in the debrief that they may, for example, come to understand they're not an extrovert, that was learned behaviour, they're actually fundamentally an introvert. So it's an indicator, not a test. The next letter I want to look at is the T. The T stands for type. And there's two issues to look at here. The first one is there are 16 types or 16 possibilities. And that is both the strength and weakness of MBTI. The strength is, from a career perspective, when people get their profile, it's like this aha light bulb moment. Often the comment is, I cannot believe this is so right. The level of detail, however, means that they forget their profile. So if I rang somebody up a year later and said, look, what's your profile? They'll probably get it wrong. For our career purposes, that doesn't matter. All we're trying to do with MBTI is stop for a minute in time, have a think about hardwired preferences, and use that information to make career decisions. And the other aspect of type is it's not tray or trait theory. So many instruments will measure you on a continuum. They'll say you're more like this than a particular cohort or less like this. As soon as you do Myers-Briggs, you will notice that it essentially forces you into one camp or the other. Now, Myers-Briggs is based on Carl Jung's work, and apparently Carl Jung said, of course, none of us are 100% introvert or 100% extrovert, for example, but you will notice it essentially wants you to come down on one side versus the other. And the final letters are MB, and they stand for Myers-Briggs. And it was a mother-daughter combination. Catherine Briggs started in the 1920s, building on Carl Jung's work. He knew of her work. She was the first person who wanted to have a mainstream application of his work. 
So it was really the first time in the world that anybody tried to use personality preferences to help people make career decisions. Because before that, fundamentally, you did what your father did, because of course back then it was mainly men working. You did what your father did, or your career choices were extremely class-driven. Okay, let's move on to the label issue. Some people don't like MBTI because they think it labels them. Yes, it obviously does. A useful analogy, however, might be if you think about your favourite room in the house. So my favourite room in the house is my bedroom. I do a lot of work on my bed. It looks out on a garden. I love the connection with the garden. My least favourite room in the house is the laundry. If you look at MBTI, the bedroom is really where you are most comfortable, where you are most in the flow, in the zone. MBTI does not mean you don't change your behaviour. So yes, of course, I go into the laundry. I don't like the laundry. I find it quite soul-destroying, but I go into the laundry. And probably from a work point of view, the example would be me working on resumes and making sure I dot the I's and cross the T's. I don't really want to do that all day but I quite happily and skillfully go into that laundry. At a minimum, somebody talked to me about this a while ago, and it's always stuck with me. At a minimum, you could argue that those 16 types are just a description of behavior preferences, and that that's no different than the DSM-5, which is the uh, American Psychiatric Association's description of mental disorders. If you've ever looked at that, they will have a series of behaviors that they put underneath a label. The label might be, borderline personality disorder, and underneath they'll have a series of behaviours. So you could argue at a minimum MBTI is no different than that. It's a useful catch-all of behaviours that are put under a label. And finally, if you're really sceptical, there's a guy called Dr Dario Nardi, wonderful guy. I went to one of his conferences in Brisbane a few years ago. And since 2006, he's focused on hands-on brain research. He uses real-time EEG technology to establish the link between the parts of the brain that light up when somebody's in the zone or in the flow doing an activity that matches with their MBTI preferences. If you just Google him, he has lots of information, interesting content and videos. And at the moment, he's producing content for a new book and he's slowly releasing it on LinkedIn. I had a look at his work on ENTP, which is my profile, and I found it even more fascinating. So perhaps explore that as well. Let's get started. Today I'm going to look at ISFJ and I'm going to go through various pieces of information. Some are going to be a bit deep and detailed, some are short, sharp and shiny and I'll just end with a little bit of light-hearted analysis. If there was a phrase to use to describe ISFJ, it would be, on my honour to do my duty. They are dependable and considerate, committed to the people and groups with which they are associated, and faithful in carrying out their responsibilities. At their core, they are industrious caretakers, loyal to traditions and organisations. They are conventional and grounded, and enjoy contributing to established structures of society. They are steady and committed workers with a deep sense of responsibility to others. 
If you look at the statistics, they're one of the most common types. They're 14% of the general population, 19% of women and 8% of men. When it comes to statistics, they're more likely to experience chronic pain and suffer heart disease than any of the other profiles. They're overrepresented amongst MBA students and male small business operators. They're more likely than any other type to watch more than three hours of TV per day. And their personal values include happy family, health and spirituality. They're commonly found in careers in education, healthcare and religion. In the workplace, ISFJs are likely to be practical and realistic, cooperative and thoughtful of others, kind and sensitive, conscientious and methodical, and concrete and specific. Now, of course, as a career practitioner, I'm interested in where ISFJs find career satisfaction. There's a wonderful book called Do What You Are by Tiger and Barron, and they outline 10 key drivers for career satisfaction. I'm only going to talk about five of them. Career satisfaction to an ISFJ means doing work that requires careful observation and meticulous accuracy, where they can use their ability to remember facts and details. The work needs to be done in a traditional, stable, orderly and structured environment, where the results are practical and service-oriented. The work needs to give them a private workspace so that they can concentrate fully for extended periods of time and with a minimum of interruptions. The work needs to let them work mainly one-on-one, helping others or with other people who share their personal beliefs and values. The work must require them to be organised and efficient in completing assignments. Famous ISFJs include Aretha Franklin, Mother Teresa, Beyonce, King George VI, Catherine Middleton, Princess Mary of Denmark and Rosa Parks. If I move beyond career satisfaction, there's another wonderful book called Working Together by Isaacson and Behrens, and it talks about what each profile is like in the workplace. I'm not going to go through it all again. I'm just going to take snippets from various elements of their behaviour and preferences. The management style of ISFJs is likely to be caring, rule-oriented and quiet. They may tend to not insist that others follow through, however, as any form of discord or confrontation is quite unappealing to the peaceful, cooperative ISFJ manager. They expect others to follow the rules and procedures without unnecessary and uncalled-for questions. ISFJs manage in a kind, understanding and personal way, focusing on harmony and mutual support and achieving results through teamwork and a sense of mutual belonging. ISFJs pay a great deal of attention to what people want and need. Their commitment is to the establishment of stability paying close attention to the needs and opinions of others. When it comes to values, ISFJs place a great deal of value on the preservation of life, which almost always translates into economics as a way of satisfying needs. In other words, they tend to allocate their resources towards maintaining and conserving whatever life provides. 
ISFJs trust traditional authority, putting their faith in credentials with demonstrated capabilities. When it comes to their attitude, the basic attitude of the ISFJ is one of fatalism. Things are what they are, and little can be done to change them. Indeed, attempting to alter the state in which ISFJs find themselves may be viewed as tampering with the essence of life itself, and probably should be off-limits. As a natural extension of being fatalistic, ISFJ managers tend to be concerned with just about everything. While not with negative intent, a fairly typical trait of ISFJs is to expect for things not to always work out, so they need to prepare for something less than the very best. What about their skills? Like the other SJs, ISFJs are skilled at anything having to do with logistics, especially in the service occupations. They are masterful in getting the right things in the right place, in the right quantity, and the right quality, at the right time, to the right people. They serve with gentleness and care, relating well to people in need of help. What's their driving force? ISFJs have a high need for security and stability, and the pathway to that state is responsibility, according to them. Therefore, an ISFJ manager will tend to seek more responsibility, especially in the area of managing people. They have a hunger for responsibility and being needed that leads them to take on more and more. They pride themselves on being accountable and feel obligated to fulfil their assigned duties. What about their energy direction? Given these skills, values and attitudes, ISFJs direct their energy towards humble service and being team players. When it comes to authority, ISFJs expect the person in charge to be obeyed and not questioned. Authority is granted by title and tenure. They have little or no patience for those who question authority, and they obey orders usually without question. They have a great deal of respect for individuals and institutions with a proven track record. People who are more recognised for their expertise are frequently admired by the ISFJ. What about their blind spots and pitfalls? Their strong desire to serve and protect may lead ISFJs to ignore their own needs. They may have difficulty in saying no. Also, don't be surprised if ISFJs from time to time may turn out to be quite stubborn. They may focus so much on the shoulds and should nots that they lose sight of what people really want and need. ISFJs may insist on procedures for procedures' sake and continue with procedures beyond their utility. Not surprisingly, they may not be all that responsive to the need for change. What makes them attractive to others? There's a group of Quora aficionados about MBTI, and I'm going to finish off with some content from that site. ISFJs are attractive to others because of their attentiveness to the needs of others, their dedication to serving their community without the expectation of recognition for their contributions, their calm and level-headed reassurance that everything will be okay, the reliability with which they support others, their hard-working nature, their tender sentimentality, their lack of pretentiousness and social posturing, and their selfless and altruistic nature. And to finish off just with a bit of light-hearted analysis, 
How would you know if an ISFJ likes you? They will wait extremely patiently for you to ask them out, so you will have to make the first move. ISFJs are sometimes shy, and they might blush, avoid eye contact, or giggle anxiously if you compliment them. ISFJs can be nervous and embarrassed revealing their feelings towards someone, so they do it subtly. They will pay attention to the details that make you smile and show up with your favourite snacks or comfort item. Where to from here? I think the starting point is for you to get to know what your profile is. And the only reliable way of doing that is to book a session with an accredited practitioner. There's really no point going online and trying to do one of those free assessments. It's the debrief that's important. I very much like the MBTI Step 2 interpretive report because that will show you not just your hardwired preferences, it will highlight areas where you choose to behave differently to your hardwired preferences. And that's often very useful information. Obviously, people come to see me because they want to use the MBTI to be basically happier at work. Either they want to move to a new job or in their existing job, they want to feel more fulfilled. It's often also used in executive coaching. And what I find is people relax when they get to know their profile. They feel validated. Then you can get them to explore when maybe their hardwired preferences need to be controlled and they need to control their behaviour. Finally, I love it just for normal everyday life. My poor husband gets used all the time, but when I first met him, I was shocked about the way he did the food shopping. He's an ISTJ, so he's very methodical about it, and I'm not methodical. And I think if I didn't understand MBTI so well, I might have been a bit superior about it. Whereas now I just understand, well, that's how an S person would shop and I just make sure I don't shop with him and I'll meet him for coffee afterwards. So I think it's very useful to understand yourself and understand and respect others. Thanks for listening to this podcast. At this stage, I'm still on my MBTI journey. I think I've got three profiles left. If you're interested, there's more information in the show notes on the website. And if you're interested in career matters in general, I do a monthly mail out. It might be an infographic, a blog, a podcast or a quick video. And if you email admin at careerconsult.com.au, we'll sign you up or else there's a sign up form on the website. As always, I'd like to finish with my hashtag. When I first started doing social media posting a few years ago, everything was hashtag, hashtag, and I just happened to think up what I think is a wonderful hashtag and what really is the essence of my work, which is hashtag, why not be happy at work? Thank you.